For years, the IRS has been complaining, <coughs> we mean commenting, on its lack of resources. And while recently things have begun to look up with promises of more staffing to help keep taxpayers in check, some jobs still seem too big for the agency. One in particular, refund claims. They require a lot of screening to make sure they're valid. And so in an effort to make screening those claims easier... The IRS's chief counsel memo released on October 15th introduced new guidance, which outlines a whole new level of documentation demands. For taxpayers, of course, this means a hefty new compliance burden. But for the IRS, the additional information will make flagging faulty refund claims that much easier. Hello, everyone. I'm Matthew DeMello, your host of the Fiona Show R&D Tax Credit. And today we'll be talking about that new guidance, which goes into effect on January 10th. 2022. No time like the present, right? What new information will taxpayers have to provide? New calculations, longer narratives, more details. The short answer to those questions is yes. But cross-border solutions, R&D tax credit expert Lydia Clowney is going to take a deeper dive with us into new guidance and lay it all out. Welcome back to the show, Lydia. Thanks for having me, Matt. To start off, Lydia, what is an R&D tax credit refundable claim? Sure. So, R&D tax credits in the U.S. aren't typically refundable, right? Usually they can only offset your tax liability. So the only instance where you would get a refund would be when you're claiming a tax credit on an amended tax return where you've already paid that tax to the IRS, and now you're asking for a refund on the tax you essentially overpaid if you would have filed your R&D tax credit timely with that return. And the IRS has announced new regulations for R&D tax credit refund claims. What is the tax authority looking to gain from the new requirements? I will answer your question, but first I am going to get super pedantic and say that it's not actually a new regulation. So it's a regulation in the colloquial sense, but we in the CPA accounting world, we use these terms really specifically. So it is not technically a regulation which has kind of overwhelming authority. It's instead an administrative memo from the IRS, and they are well within their rights to put out these sort of guidelines and rules for how they will analyze, address, and you know work with taxpayers. So this is what this is. It's an administrative decision. And in fact, it came across because some taxpayers were actually asking for more guidance on how to file one of these claims. So the, the reason that the IRS has said that they are putting these new requirements into place is to make it easier to see when that refund claim is being submitted, if it's actually valid. Is the taxpayer actually entitled to the refund that the IRS would be paying? It does put the burden on the taxpayer to kind of lay out all the facts and circumstances. And it essentially is a pre-screen for audit. So this is new guidance, but these aren't new laws, no new regulations per se. Correct. So this is not uh, internal revenue code which is our most authoritative statute that we have. The next level down is the internal revenue services regulations that they promulgate. These are supporting or explaining the code sections in the internal revenue code. 
And then we kind of step down in terms of the guidance that we get from the IRS. And so an administrative procedure is the IRS saying, as a bureaucracy, this is how we will go about administering the rules that are set out in the Internal Revenue Code, which comes from Congress, and regulations that come from the Internal Revenue Service. So so taking this from a taxpayer perspective, do you treat guidance as regulations? From a taxpayer perspective, we treat them as authoritative guidance. We treat it as something that we have to incorporate into our filings because the IRS is allowed to make rules. They have been given the ability by Congress to set out the, again, the administrative requirements for how they go about doing their work. Congress, they're not tax experts. They write the laws, but then it's frequently, you know, it's up to the IRS to administer them. And so they are given some latitude to determine how they will go about doing that and what the specific forms and structures are that they can require taxpayers to conform to. So while it is not, again, our law, it is still something that we do have to incorporate into our compliance in order to expect to be granted our tax credit. And Lydia, when do they go into effect? There is a kind of a transition period. So the IRS will give taxpayers a one-year period after that point where they'll essentially give you a little bit extra grace. They will allow you 30 days to amend a refund claim. Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern-day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country-specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University Weekly. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai slash tpu. So from there, what were the regulations before? In other words, why are taxpayers and practitioners seeing this change as so significant? It is so significant because there really wasn't that guidance before. The R&D tax credit was, there wasn't any specific guidance related to how to present it on an amended return. And so in the absence of that, you know, tax practitioners, R&D tax credit consultants, tax preparers, we would look to just the general guidelines for amending returns and what's required in order to make any general amendment to a tax return. And so what that would look like, the kind of information we would provide was simply the summary numbers from our 6765, which is the tax form for the Credit for Increasing Research Activities. And those are very high level. It's a lump sum for qualified wages, for instance, a lump sum for qualified supplies. And then on the amended return, on maybe if you're a corporation, you're 1120X, there's a section where you can provide a narrative to say, what are you amending and, and why? And what we would tend to put on an amended return like that is a really generic statement, something like the taxpayer is amending the return 
due to the discovery of qualified research expenses, giving rise to a credit for increasing research activities. It would be extremely generic. There would be no specific conversation about what those activities were, what those expenses were, and then the numbers would be on the 6765. And if the IRS wanted to pull our return for, for audit, for exam, they could do so, at which point we would provide more information on those activities and on those expenses. The change now is that we have to provide all of that information on the upfront. And that's a really big lift. That is a very big lift. And it, one of the new requirements is that the IRS wants specific information about how each business component relates to an R&D activity. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So a business component, just to kind of refresh everyone's memories, it's, it's the product or process or software, technique, invention, or formula that we are developing or improving that that, that is going to give rise to our, our credit, you know, our qualified activities. So the IRS is requiring that for every single individual business component, which could mean each individual new product, new process, improved process, new software, the taxpayer has to identify all of the research activities performed on that business component, each individual who performed each research activity, and all of the information each individual sought to discover in order to push that development forward. This is a huge ask. If you think about some of these companies that are performing a lot of development activity, we're going to be talking about hundreds or thousands of business components, hundreds, thousands, tens, hundreds of thousands of individuals potentially working on research. And then you try to get into all the information each individual sought to discover. That almost is an infinite ask. So this is really, in some ways, it's a specific request, but in some ways, it's really open-ended. And you were saying there how in some ways it's open-ended. Is there any amount of subjectivity when it comes to requests? There is an incredible amount of subjectivity here, yes. And when you think about uh, those of us who have experience under exam, we know that a different IRS agent or examiner can result in a completely different result, even with the same fact pattern. So it's a little bit concerning that there is this, again, very open-ended request when we don't know exactly what each individual at the IRS is going to be looking for in order to find it sufficient. And from the taxpayer's perspective, too, because as you say, all the information each individual sought to discover. And from that taxpayer's perspective, can a tax department say what each individual was hoping to find? And what does that look like on paper? So the IRS is requesting this information in a narrative format which is another kind of interesting facet to this. Usually when we're talking about accounting, we're talking about spreadsheets and you know showing the numbers. And this is totally converse to that perspective. Instead, what they'd rather have is almost a story that walks through how this development was being executed. And what it appears to me is every little thing that was uncertain and who looked into trying to figure out how to resolve that uncertainty and what were the procedures that they performed? What kind of testing did they do? 
how did the results of testing feed back into uh, redesign maybe or or a, a reconception of maybe the product that we're trying to develop? Product life cycles can be long. So many people can have their hands in a product. Think about our modern world. So many products have a, a software component and a hardware component. Well, now we've just compounded the difficulty of trying to put together a compelling narrative that's going to, you know, persuade an IRS agent that not only has this qualified development occurred, but, but that we can support it, that we can back it up and that we've jumped through every possible hoop to make sure that they cannot deny us on a technicality. And Lydia, what does this mean for the taxpayer? It means so much extra work. It means that you essentially need to prepare for your audit ahead of being pulled for audit. This could mean that we are providing this narrative on, again, all our business components. So that could be hundreds of business components. This could end up being a narrative that runs into the hundreds of pages. Now, the IRS is not requesting supporting documentation, but I I don't know that that's really ending up to be a benefit. I think that the putting together that kind of narrative to, to tell that story is still a really big ask. Right. And at the business component level, activities need to be explained. And of course, it's not just about the activities, but what individuals were trying to discover and businesses can have thousands of business components. So at this level, we're putting a microscope on activities. And in terms of these claims, is this something that the tax department would be expected to prepare or would this be something, I don't know, a, a research department takes on? It tends to be nearly impossible for a tax department or a finance department to put this kind of information together. Certainly they may have, but the internal revenue code for the credit for increasing research activities, or I'm sorry, it might actually be in the regulations, but it does require that the information to that drives the credit, the information about those activities does need to come from individuals at the company who have direct knowledge of the development being performed. Um, so my guess is, is that that would be the same case here. And just frankly, you know, a tax department's not going to know what is actually going on on the ground. What does the testing look like? What are the challenges today that are coming up in the engineering department? They simply won't have insight into that. So uh, an R&D tax credit calculation is always kind of a marriage of our finance folks and our technical folks. And particularly the narrative uh, required for this amended return would be, I would say it would have to be, the information would have to come from the technical expert. So is that a shift at all? Or is that how it's always been for these amended returns? It is the way it has always been for R&D tax credit studies that a significant quantity of information must come from technical contacts or, or subject matter experts, those folks working in the development who have that direct knowledge of the development activities being performed. So that's not different. The difference is the lift, the ask, is the the granularity and the specificity, the broad scope of describing those activities typically is not required until we reach the audit period. And if a company is not pulled for audit, potentially you never have to provide that description of, you know, your 501st and 502nd business components. So, So that's really the change here. It's having to do all that on the upfront just to submit the claim. Since this information could have been requested for an audit in the past, is 
Is this information something that companies keep on file typically for amended R&D claims? Typically not. And the reason I will say that is because typically what the IRS looks at at the audit stage is the documentation, the contemporaneous documentation that was produced during the development phase that supports the expenses and the activities that we're claiming. And typically it's that actual documentation. So um, the test results or the meeting minutes or the software release notes, those kinds of things are typically what we look to to prove out our development in front of an IRS agent. And then, yes, we do need to provide a narrative. We need to tell that story. But usually what we do is we we rely on the memories of the folks at the company. It doesn't usually make a lot of sense to pre-prepare everything for an audit because it can be incredibly expensive and because audits aren't a one-size-fits-all kind of thing. An audit can be very small. An audit can be very large. It can touch on this part of the tax return or that part of the tax return. You can't predict ahead of time, A, whether you will be audited, or B, what that audit will look like if it happens. And so the cost to pre-prepare those materials, particularly the narrative, doesn't tend to be worth it for most taxpayers because most taxpayers won't be pulled for audit. In the event that we would get pulled for audit, we would go back to that company. We'd find those employees who provided the contemporaneous documentation or the allocations for that period. And we would say, hey, tell us more about how these testing results show that you were performing qualified activity. And at that point, we'd write the memo. So basically, you have the same people viewing the work in terms of explaining the R&D activities, but now there's just so much more explaining to do. Yes, that's correct. Note to multinational companies everywhere, if you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, big four. We've got the answer. Cross-border solutions, AI-powered transfer pricing software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate, hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits, penalties, and adjustments. And our technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big-name consultant. Again, apologies, Big Four. Stay in compliance and on budget with cross-border solutions, AI-driven transfer pricing software. It's no wonder we're the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. There we go again. I'm so sorry, Big. You know what? Wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of cross-border solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp that's xbs.ai slash tp and expenses have to be listed on the component level too is that true yeah it is true i kind of glossed over that at first because that is the kind of thing that we do have on hand when we're producing a credit study so it's much easier to provide say you know wages by employee or supplies by vendor That's something that's already going into the credit. And while we wouldn't typically report those numbers on our 6765, we just report the lump sum. We still have the supporting documentation and it's, you know, usually as easy as, you know, printing an Excel sheet or something like that. So less of a change or a difficult ask. But but yes, we need to list 
all of our qualified expenses and we need to link them to our business components. So what portion of employee wages were for each project, which supply expense was hit to each business component. And I know the IRS wants to see facts surrounding activities in a written statement. Why is that? So they don't want to have to interpret documents. They don't want to have to interpret Excel spreadsheets. They don't want to have to look through those pieces of contemporaneous documentation and put two and two together themselves. They want to put that burden on the taxpayer and they want the taxpayer to persuade them. So they do say that they will accept contemporaneous documentation if you really want to provide it, in which case you should also provide a memo that says exactly what should be gleaned from each piece of documentation and exactly where it can be found to the page and potentially even to the sentence level needs to be pointed out very specifically. They also will allow the provision of like uh, credit studies. So if you have a study done by a a third party and, and that can be provided as well, but of course you do need to, again, point out very particularly which parts of that credit study are answering the requirements that the IRS has. Then there are some best practice regulations, sign off on the facts, submit on time. But what happens if a taxpayer doesn't doesn't submit these minimum standards? So this is a really unfortunate area where they're not giving us any recourse. And after that initial one-year kind of transition period where they will allow some uh, amendments if, uh, if these claims are found to be deficient, they can simply reject it. If they reject it as invalid or insufficient, there's no chance to amend it. There's no chance to even request them to take another look at it, to appeal. There's nothing like that. It is simply denied with no recourse. So it means that you don't get any of that money. While the IRS hasn't required taxpayers to submit this kind of detailed information on claims, it has requested this type of information during audits. For now, the regulations apply to amended claims. Do you think this is the groundwork for requiring it on regular R&D tax credit claims? So I might be being too optimistic here, but I, my guess is no. And really, the reason for that is capacity. I don't think that the IRS has the capacity to even do a cursory examination of the kind of documentation they're requesting on every timely filed R&D tax credit claim. So I'm crossing my fingers that I'm right. (laughs) It'll be a real uh, (laughs) game changer. (laughs) And Lydia, you've been working in the R&D tax credit field for a long time. Was there anything about the regulations that surprised you? know if surprised i'm i'm perturbed i it 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 bothers me that this memo has the appearance of specificity while in my opinion really leaving a very open-ended and frankly vague requirement for what taxpayers are supposed to provide here i guess i guess if anything surprises me it's it's the lack of any recourse after a denial, the lack of any ability to that that did surprise me. So, Lydia, why does that surprise you? It surprises me because our tax code tends to be pretty allowing of appeals, of a second chance, of even if you're pulled for exam and you've gone through the whole negotiation with an auditor and you get to the point where they say they make a determination, you still have the right to appeal. 
and, and that's true in, in a lot of in a lot of places in the code. And so I think that's why it surprised me. I, I typically expect there to be some way to say, hey, IRS, I think you made a mistake here. And obviously these new regulations will make life a little trickier for taxpayers. There will be additional documentation demands. Do you think that will deter taxpayers from applying from the refund credit? I don't see how it wouldn't. Yes, I absolutely think there will be a a dampening effect on the desire or the the willingness of taxpayers to claim refunds that that they frankly might be due. It's already kind of a scary area for taxpayers. I mean, it can kind of seem too good to be true to to get money back from the government for doing something you're already doing in the course of business. Uh, So I, I tend to see some some skepticism from folks already. And these new requirements are onerous to the point that it's going to change the cost benefit analysis for some companies. Uh, there will be companies that it simply costs too much to produce this documentation, to produce a hopefully perfected refund claim, cost them more than they're going to get in credit. And since you don't have to file a credit for increasing research activities, it's an optional extra. If it costs you more to do it than you're going to recoup, you simply won't claim. And I know these regulations don't apply to the original tax credit, but is there anything about them that would deter taxpayers from applying to the original credit? So this should not have any impact on your timely filed R&D credit claim on a timely filed return. So I I hope not to see a dampening effect there. And I I don't think we will just because it's not the kind of thing you're going to find unless you're an expert or you're really looking for it. So I don't worry about sort of the marketing effect uh, of of having this out there for, for the amended claims. I really think it's more for those companies that are trying to go back and pick up what they didn't get in those years that are still open to statute, but have been filed. And do you think taxpayers should opt out of claiming the R&D tax credit refund due to these heightened requirements? Absolutely not. No. First things first, we don't know how this is going to flesh out. They say nothing's eaten as hot as it's cooked. And potentially, even with these requirements in place, we still might see refund claims going through with a more generalized or cursory narrative than I may be expecting with my super pessimistic hat on. So I, I would not deter folks from trying to the extent that, you know, that they're able to make that cost benefit work. I do think it requires a little bit more forethought from the taxpayer and their advisors on whether they'll be able to put together a kind of narrative that we expect to be able to fulfill the requirements of the new administrative memo. But it's just such a generous tax credit. Again, it's it's getting something for nothing. It's getting something for something you're already doing. And, you know, the reason that we got these requirements also, the reason that they've pr- finally been uh, laid out <laughs> as unclearly as they're laid out now is that taxpayers asked for it. Taxpayers were wondering, What should they provide on an amended claim? And this is pretty common where taxpayers say the rules are unclear. Please help us understand them. And then the IRS comes out and they, you know, take a lot of time and they figure out, well, what do we say? We're going to help explain them more. And this is just one of those cases. So certainly there's more difficulty with these refund claims now, but I still think it's probably probably worth the stretch. And because taxpayers have said, hey, what do you want to see in these refund claims? And the IRS has responded with exactly what they're looking for in these refund claims. Does this 
offer the taxpayer any greater tax certainty, any greater guarantee that they will get the refund because they know exactly what information to provide and exactly how to make their case to the IRS. Has has that changed? I think we'll see more certainty once we're able to uh, see this this new rule in action for a little while longer. We always need that kind of experiential uh, aspect, again, because the credit is so judgmental in the first place and because we're working with humans at the IRS. So because of that subjectivity, we really do need to see how is this actually going to play out over the next year? And I think we'll have a lot more information once we start seeing what kinds of claims are being accepted and what kinds of claims are being rejected. And how can technology help taxpayers with these new requests to the IRS for refund claims? Technology can absolutely make it easier to put this kind of documentation together. There are new technologies that can provide a a great uh, nexus between activities and expenses in a way that some tax preparers haven't done before. And software can provide a better audit trail in some cases. So uh, we can really see and at maybe the click of a button, print out what would be required in order to get that submitted to the IRS. And in the past, the IRS would ask for this information upon audit. But now, if the taxpayer is submitting this information already, Lydia, and an audit is taking place, what kind of additional information would the taxpayer be expected to apply in that situation? It is really hard to guess what an audit would look like subsequent to an accepted refund claim, because my guess is that it would be a higher hurdle to overcome for the IRS agent because there's already been kind of preliminary decision made, again, by the IRS that the claim is valid. My guess is that we'll likely see these refund claims that are accepted pulled for audit less frequently. The IRS, they have their own cost-benefit analyses, and if they think that there is less of a chance of recouping on an exam, they'll pick another taxpayer. But, you know, it's one of those things that I do think we'll have to kind of wait and see how it actually works out in practice. And before we wrap up, advice to taxpayers looking to claim an R&D tax credit refund. I say get help. I really think this approximates an audit in so many ways, particularly that we just need the experience of what is the IRS going to be looking for when they're examining these these documents, this narrative. And if you have a, a trusted professional who has that experience with the IRS, knows how to talk their language, uh, understands sort of the, the landscape there, that can only be a benefit. A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross-Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai slash rd. That's xbs.ai slash rd.
We want to thank Lydia for joining us on today's show for this very informative discussion. If you like today's podcast, you're going to love the other shows and cross-border solutions tax podcast suite. That's the Fiona Show transfer pricing and the Fiona Show tax provision. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's the Fiona Show R&D tax credit, and we'll keep you up to date on the latest in this beneficial credit every week. My name's Matthew DeMello, and they let me host, edit, and engineer this podcast. Mary Lynn Mitchumstrom is our executive producer and wrote today's script. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. We'll catch you next time. <laughs>